Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So before we dive into the top five threat hunting headlines, I just want to mention, because we have Lee here, he's got a workshop this week, Wednesday noon that's going to be dealing with live data focusing on credential access and walking through hunting for different types of behaviors and activities so it'd be a great way to get your feet wet learn some new things and have a fun time so with that let's dive into the first article that i was going to bring up which is one of our favorites as far as a source and it's a defer report so this defer report it was called collect exfiltrate sleep repeat this was associated with Iranian activity. Had a lot of interesting things as far as hands-on keyboard activity, which I always love to see. Not so much like what is scripted activity, but kind of how an adversary operates. And I think it's a great example of use of PowerShell. There was a heavy use of PowerShell for almost every single you know tactic. Uh, if you if you familiar with the MITRE tactics from all their discovery, their collection, the exfiltration, some of their persistence. So if you're not familiar with PowerShell, this is a great place to look to see some basic things they did because they didn't really do anything super sophisticated with PowerShell as far as obfuscation things. And they had a couple custom scripts they wrote for specific things like they had a screen capture script. Or they had a script that was basically reading a registry key so that they could you know, that's how they were doing key log and they're using auto hotkey for key logging and they were saving those strokes to registry key they'd pull out. So, you know, a lot of really good ways to kind of get familiar with PowerShell and some things you can kind of hunt for, see if what they're doing is common in your behavior or in your your environment, in your behavior. So I thought that's kind of how I would apply this is looking at this, the common things they were doing and do you see that activity in general? The other thing that I always thought was always really good and, you know, we're both big proponents. I know you introduced me to Sysmon way back in the day was, you know, they, they have where it's a word document from phishing. And I know we, a lot of people focus on execution for phishing activity. If you see, you know, office 365 type applications kicking off, say, you know, PowerShell or CMD or something like that. I also think with stuff like Sysmon with file creates, when you see those type of applications creating files, they normally don't interact with. Like if they're not creating a doc, like Word's not creating a docx or a doc. And in this case, they're creating like VB scripts and things. I think that's a great way to identify, you know, abnormal behavior because that's not intended or expected, but obviously it happens. So when you're building your Sysmon monitoring kind of rule sets, it's great data to collect as far as, you know, specific abused applications and what kind of files they interact with. So, yeah, I don't know, uh, Lee, if you had a chance to look over this and, and some of your takeaways. No, so you're absolutely right. What these reports have, the, the strength, like one of their major strengths is they always bring to the surface either new or very powerful log sources. So you mentioned a lot of PowerShell activity. There is the ability to capture some PowerShell execution within 
Sysmon log source or the you know Windows event logging that's native to the operating system. But if you really want to get the whole picture of what's going on, if you look into PowerShell script block logging, which is a whole other log source that actually falls in the Windows or Microsoft Windows PowerShell operational bucket, that's where you can really you can capture things like the command or the commandlets, the things like get item, set item. So those things that native Windows event logging will miss. And like you said, Sysmon. Sysmon is a insanely powerful, almost EDR log source for Microsoft Windows. It's created by Microsoft. It just doesn't come natively. You have to install it later on. It comes from the Microsoft System Terminal suite. But if you start playing with that, you can actually see the depth of information that it will provide you. Going yeah, back so to the manual executions as well, there was actually some discovery tactics and commands that were being thrown that I haven't seen in the past. A lot of it dealt with time. And then I even think in the scheduled task, they create a scheduled task and then they ran it manually, which I thought was interesting because that just paints the picture of how much time they had hands on keyboard what they were doing and you know what their goal was like they didn't want to wait for next reboot they wanted it to go now it was a really interesting article as always but always fun to see these new behaviors coming to light yeah one thing i wanted to note when you talked about enabling the powershell script block logging that i think is hugely powerful too especially if you are kind of new to looking at powershell when you look at logging captured that way, any obfuscation or encoding kind of gets stripped. So you get to see after it's converted it to executable script language that you know, is how people would write it if they weren't trying to hide anything. You can see that directly in the log, which makes, if you were gonna build detections or alerts or you wanna hunt off specific common techniques, much easier because you're not trying to like code against obfuscation anymore. You can just look for the specific commands and actions. Very good call out and very important. Cool. So yeah, if you've got nothing else, I think that sums up what I've got on that one. What do you've got for us? So my first article is by a analyst one. They've put out a Intel report, and this is uh, really more threat intel versus behaviors and uh, tactics, techniques. Uh, it doesn't really get technical. They did a deep dive into North Korea intelligence, and they released the North Korea intelligence assessment of 2022, and they provided so much details on the structure and the organization that exists within North Korea. They highlighted the different units that are within the within the organization, like Unit 121 is the elite cyber unit. I've never heard of that before. Um, their focus is to really oversee other units and conduct the operations. You know, they have their own subordinate organizations. And a, a blurb that came from the report that I find really interesting is that it says, as strange as it may sound, while its headquarters is located in Pyongyang, North Korea, service members from Unit 121 train and operate out of the basement of a restaurant attached to the, and I may mispronounce this, but the Chilbosan Hotel in China. And it's a, the hotel is a joint venture between the two nations. So it makes sense when I read that. But still reading it, it's like brand, like you don't think of that. You normally think of nation states operating out of their own country. But if you think about what North Korea is and how restricted their internet is and what they let in, what they let out, and really who, who actually has access to computers, it makes sense. 
because only the you know the higher tiered people, the rich, the elites, the organ or the government officials that need to have computers have computers. Um, and then if you're lucky, you know, if you're a normal civilian, you might have access to it. But that that just blew my mind to think about you know a nation state operating out of another country. Also, they highlighted some interesting thoughts that I saw, like. The Korea has its own operating system, which is the Red Star OS. It's based on Linux. It also has its own custom browser that it built that's based on open source Firefox code. And really what this, and of course, you know, their idea is to control it, but what by using their own internet, the operating system and search engine, North Korea adds several layers of security between their data and the rest of the world. This provides additional safeguards to help keep out foreign intelligence agencies However, it limits North Korea's access to resources the global internet provides. So just the different ways of controlling it, this whole report was amazing. They had a structure, learning about the new units or the units that exist, what their missions are, and how they really operate and what technologies they have. It was just a really interesting read. Like I said, not a lot on behaviors, tactics, techniques, and procedures, but more on just threat intel whenever it comes to it. What, what were your thoughts? Yeah, so I love reports like this because, you know, I'm always talking about understanding like geopolitical things to understand, you know, what to try to predict as far as activities and, you know, so forth and who might be your real threats out there. And one of the things I loved is when they broke down the infrastructure of their different offices and units that were responsible for different things, it was very clear that North Korea was really using a cyber arm to gain money. It was really a money-making process. I mean, they call out, they have a whole office responsible for laundering the money so they can clean it after they steal it. They have a whole group responsible for stealing money, you know, taking advantage of the SWIFT base payment switch and, you know, ATM type stuff. So, you know, when you think of your your potential, you know, if I was in the financial industry, obviously North Korea should be on my radar based on just how they set up their infrastructure for cyber and, and the different offices and resources they're dedicating resources to. And then it was really interesting, and you talked about, you know, where they worked out of the um, hotel basement. They also kind of showed some of the networking stuff and how, you know, they primarily are using Russian-based public IP space and China-based public IP space for different things. But they are a very small footprint as far as North Korea address on the internet, uh, so to speak. So I can understand why they want to disperse outside of their, their space because they're a lot harder to deal with. Um, so that was really insightful. But it also made me think, too, I don't know if you've heard of it. But actually, I had to give a report, and it was, and I was looking for interesting reports like this back when the Ukrainian grid attack happened in 2015, and then later in like 2017, I think. You know, I had to brief my executives. I work, for, we both worked for an energy company, and I was looking for good reports. And the Estonian Foreign Intelligence Service they put out a public report just like these, but they do really, really, really good coverage of Russia almost annually as far as what they're up to, what they're involved in. And it's interesting because you look back at the reports, you can see all the preemptive things Russia was doing prior to the grid attack on Ukraine, prior to the Crimea stuff. I mean, there you can see, you know, intelligence analysts' jobs, not so much in cyber, but in general, are, are there to predict what countries might do based on how they change their behaviors or things. Obviously, when you have the answers for the current events now, you can look back and say, oh, it was obvious. But there is details in these reports that I think are very insightful. So that's another one. I think if you if you find these reports very interesting, and I'll make sure to include this in the show's notes of their example of the Estonian Ford intelligence. But it's good to get other countries' uh, intelligence 
you know, when they, especially when they deal with certain countries, they may be adversaries too. So but yeah, good find. Thank you. Yeah, it was really interesting. And like you said, you got to know your, like this is, goes into knowing how the threat actors operate and understanding, you know, what different pieces fit in the puzzle. But that's all I have for this article. Well, what do you have next? Yeah, so I was going to jump on another one, and, and it was kind of interesting because I started seeing all this Iranian stuff happening, right? And this one's from Trend, and it's new APT-34 malware targets the Middle East. And this one stood out only because the DEFA report I just talked about dealt with APT-34. And I'll break this one down, kind of give you my, my thoughts on the two different reports. But this one is referring to a dropper that basically is there to steal credentials in many different ways. But one of the interesting ways they do it is they create a password filter. So every time someone changes their password or does things, it runs against this DLL. And this is a known thing. So if companies want to restrict certain passwords or patterns or things for passwords being utilized, they can create a custom DLL to do this. Well, the attacker was doing this to basically steal passwords. But, you know, and amongst other techniques to steal across our passwords, but one of the techniques they were also using to exfiltrate the data was Gmail and ProtonMail. And it made me think, you know, we hunt for behaviors for how adversaries operate. And there was a very insightful silence, had a really cool uh, report about Iranian activity. And I think it dated back to 2012, such a big operation that they wanted to release the information early as opposed to waiting to see what was going to happen. It was called Operation Cleaver. And in it, they were using some of the same techniques as far as how they were communicating and exfilling data using email. They're really big about using email across these, you know, and this was, you know, more than 10 years ago, right? So when you get really good at understanding techniques adversaries prefer, this is where it kind of becomes beneficial. And obviously in this case, if you weren't allowing people internally to access you know, their personal email and stuff, this whole process would break down for how they get information out. But yeah, so one of the things that you could look for, for this kind of password filter thing they put in place, there is registry key and it's in the current control set, the LSA, and that's notification packages. And that, that's the name of the value. And then the whatever you put into that value name is really what the filter is supposed to be. So they reference the DLL that they initiate. So that's something to kind of look for there. But yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. And then obviously they have to use a .NET launch to basically connect an exchange service client to the public email to be able to send the, the stuff. So if you're seeing multiple attachments with emails going to personal emails in a, in a close time frame, that's something from like a pattern perspective. Um, it'd be really interesting. But the other thing I really wanted to call out that I thought was really interesting was there was no mention or use of PowerShell in this. And we are talking about an APT 34 that I'm pretty sure they got that name and it's obviously endured for almost a decade. And that's, I think, kind of a problem we have when it comes to intelligence is we very rarely retire group names. And I think we start associating too much behavior to groups because I think we got to get away from assigning names to groups just to give them a name. We should be assigning names to the period of behavior and if they change that behavior, then they kind of are justified a new name um, because I think that's a better use because, you know, they're obviously both reports, the DEFA report and this one are calling out APT-34, but clearly distinct behaviors. Now, one's more malware, maybe more autonomous and one's more hands-on. So that might be the distinct difference. 
but there's a good chance there could be two different Iranian groups working within the same kind of regime, but they have a different skill set, different purpose, and so forth. So, you know, that's something I think people should always keep in mind when people associate activity to certain groups. I know some intelligence firms do a really good job retiring names and saying we haven't seen activity or we promoted them to a different group name, but they're affiliated. So, yeah, that's kind of what I got. What do you think? So I'm always a sucker for registry key modifications. And the reason <laughs> the reason that being is that I know some, you know, EDRs or XDRs or any tools that you can apply to the to your network, they have a defined scope of which registry keys they're going to monitor. Reason being, they I'm sure they prioritize it working with multiple tools. You, you see that, especially with common tactics like current version you know, dropping stuff in the run folders or run hides, you know, for persistence. But when it comes to registry key modifications, I find it a balancing game. To get good visibility, you have to find which ones are important. But when you have reports like this that um, find a specific registry key, like how many people are going to find that? And I think it's very, very important to work on that as a, as a organization because certain registry keys can provide powerful information like you can modify a registry key that will downgrade you know Kerberos tickets so you'll get the rc4 encryption where you know once you get that then you can move it off and then crack it really easily things like that are important and understanding the power of the registry i think really needs to be done from a blue team point of view um so that was the real takeaway i because you know registry keys screen at me but the like like i said the problem is you can't just go in and turn on all auditing on your registry keys because then you'll have nothing but registry keys. So, so taking the time to go through and prioritize is important. You know, you bring up a good point. And, you know, from where we sit, we, we deal with a lot of tooling. And that is one of, I think, the biggest gaps across different EDR. It seems like every type of EDR solution seems to monitor slightly different registry keys. And sometimes they hit on keys that are used and sometimes they don't. But, you know, one of the things I know why in some instances where it would just generate so much noise when that key is being changed because it gets changed often but i think with edr where they could really gain ground on this if they were would really focus on what processes is editing the registry key right because the ones that do it on a regular basis it's almost like you can whitelist that telemetry so you know it's not going to be collected and stored versus if something else changes that same key then you know about it so, but yeah, you're right. Registry keys are always very interesting as far as, you know, how to get around or skirt around certain things. And I think that's why some of the visibility. I think a fun project would be to identify which keys your EDR or your tools are monitoring. Go into your Windows native logging, find reports like this, see what else is important and see where you can like, um, if you do have an EDR in a SIM solution at running at the same time, See if you can identify, like you said, which ones change all the time. Because I know I using Sysmon, back to Sysmon, because it's great, I threw in a completely empty configuration file, so it was capturing everything. And all I did was restart my computer, and I wanted to see which registry keys turned on, turned off, were modified just by that simple act. And there were a lot. Mm -hmm. So like you said, you could whitelist those possibly. But, you know, kind of like uh, if you don't see it in your EDR, maybe go in and find those important registry keys and turn them on natively within Windows. That way you can kind of see both sides. So if your year has not seen it, maybe your native Windows login can. Well, that's where I feel like Syspawn's really strong because with the Windows, you know, it's kind of like an all or nothing. 
and then you have to play in both spaces. One of the, I think the harder places to configure logging for is in the user hive, which is commonly abused by attackers because it's if you have access to the user's creds or the user session or whatever, then you have access to the user hive to make any changes versus the, the system hive. And so that's where some attackers even use persistence. But some things don't exist in the user hive until they're created. And when you want to create auditing for those, you either really have to do it from a GPO perspective or you have to wait and manually create the hive and then add the auditing after the fact. So, but with Sysmon, you can disregard the hive. And as long as you have similar, you know, strings or similar terms in the path, you can just use that and it will pick up on either hive. It won't matter. So you can kind of get a little more broad and specific with Sysmon, which is really beneficial, I think. And tells you, I think, very easily what process is interacting with things too. So you can whitelist base off that, like I mentioned. Oh, yeah. And uh, so biggest takeaway from this podcast is install Sysmon. Just saying. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) There's a lot of value, at least in your lab, if you're going to be playing with things and detonating things, it's a great way to at least get the visibility. So if you have other things you want to use, you have data to kind of drive those decisions. Oh, absolutely. You'll see that in a lot of research papers is, you know, they'll list off the log sources they used and you'll see Sysmon there plenty of times. Right. All right. Well, what do you got? Uh, So next Next. article is actually more technical than my last one. And this was from ReliaQuest. And it's titled Sock Ghoulish, A Tale of Fake Updates. So going back to what Sock Ghoulish is, uh, it's a malware distribution network that employs social engineering and drive-by compromise to drop malware and endpoints. It's also known as fake update because a lot of times that's how they folks and that's how they scare you. You know, that pop-up of, hey, you're using this, you're using an older version. This isn't supported anymore. Security, you know, risks by doing this. So, you know, being the proactive individual normally, you know, you want to say, oh, I got an update. Well, through there is a risk. You you know, always want to check the URL, you know, do some work or some research before you hit update just to see like where that link is taking you. A way to do this is if you left click, no, yeah, left, geez, right click and say copy link, drop that into like Google or virus total. Because if you go to Google and search on it, it'll show you the whole string of it. Or if you drop it in like a notepad or a Word document, something like that to actually see what the link looks like instead of just hitting the update Chrome. Um, you know, you'll find more information. It might not take you to google.com slash update. It might take you to something.ru. But it speaks to the power of scaring the user, scaring people to update or click links to get, you know, to fix things. Doing what they think is right when it could be completely malicious. But some network artifacts that they found were URLs that led to stage two soft bullish payload, or sorry, the fake update uh, it looked legitimate and it contained a JavaScript payload that established command and control. Once the C2 channels were established, then the, the next URLs were led to another archive with more JavaScript in it. That included an update.js file, and now that name could change, but it was seen um, throughout the attack. Once that payload, the JavaScript, or the second stage JavaScript executed, then wscript.exe created or would establish the next C2 channel for the stage three site that was actually used to receive and update commands and information and instructions from the server and this was all gathered by a text document that lived in the app data local temp directory. So however it was feeding that text file, 
it would head to the C2 server, and that information would be processed, and you know, they would throw the next commands that were updated. Um, now, some endpoint artifacts, they saw WMIC being used to connect to a domain controller. And one of the most interesting things about this article was that the use of Windows Event Utility. So normally, when threat actors are seen using this utility, which provides a lot of information about the log sources that are being collected, you can actually extract logs or event logs from PowerShell or command, however you want, and output them to a file somewhere. Um, but mainly the threat actors use it for defense evasion, where you'll see Windows Event Utility, .exe, CL for clear logs, and then the log source that they want to clear. And that's normally to hide their tracks. But this time, threat actors are actually enumerating event logs. A specific one was Windows Security Event ID 4776, or the domain controller attempted to validate the credentials for an account. Now, they would take all those events and they would export them to a certain file that was in the program's data directory. Now, what they were doing here was that they were actually just taking these logs and using it for discovery instead of defense evasion, which I thought was genius because normally as a threat hunter, you're looking for that, the clear log or the set log. And those things, you know, they modify if the log source is collecting or if the log source is being cleared. And like I said, I thought this was just genius. And then they moved on to focus on a registry key that actually disabled restricted admin mode for remote desktop uh, protocol. Now, what this is, is whenever restricted admin mode is enabled, it prevents credentials being stored in memory. Now, by disabling that, those credentials for RDP connections are now stored in memory. They can create a dump file, and then they could, you know, process that on their end. Um, but once again, the registry key being popped up, you know, that goes back to the conversation we just had. Is your EDR seeing that? Is that logging enabled? And why is it significant? But those were the big takeaways of my, from this article. I thought it was really interesting, especially that use of the Windows event utility. A new behavior, I haven't seen it before, but it was really interesting to see how the threat actors are looking at tools that are being used today and how they can leverage them different ways. I found that fairly interesting. But what about you, Coley? Yeah, I mean, the, the two big highlights for me were definitely them looking at the 4776 logs, which is the domain controller attempted to validate the credentials for an account. Because one, obviously, like you said, it's a great way to sit there and say, everyone that uses the domain to validate their, their domain controller to validate their creds, they'll see every device on the network for logins if they pull back far enough as far as the time span. But also it shows that they obviously had the credentials to then access the domain controller and pull these logs. So they kind of already had the keys, which, you know, is, is always interesting when you look at the duration or span of an attack. You know, what do the adversaries do once they got the keys of the kingdom? I think that's like a big defining line as far as like intent and, you know, possible additional capabilities. Because usually I feel like adversaries will try to get as far as they can without using much of their tool sets if they don't have to. And if they get domain admin, then the, the game kind of changes because they have what they need. So what are they going to do now? And in this case, they did a lot more discovery, which I thought was really interesting. You know, it shows they had a very clear intent and it wasn't just gaining access everywhere. So that that I thought was interesting. And I'm always like, I didn't know about the restricted admin mode until I actually looked at the use case you created or, you know, threat hunt package you created because I reviewed it, which I love about our process because that's how I learn a lot is reviewing other people's hunts and seeing kind of what they put together. 
but that stood out to me too because I thought it was a very interesting way where you don't have to crack a bunch of passwords by using this technique. If you're able to at least get hashes and turn this on, it enables pass the hash capability for basically a graphical remote desktop connection, which you know gives you a whole whole slew of other things. You know, obviously you need to have some sort of pipe on the network, be able to leverage that. But that was also I thought a very you know interesting thing because I, I believe you created that hunt package a while back and it's it's rearing its head here again so also a good thing so yeah it's nice yeah moving on to i think about? yeah the last article it's going to be it's from opal sec and it's the defender's guide to OneNote maldox so if anyone's being kind of paying attention to kind of the activity as far as the new social engineering techniques and things people are using OneNote now a lot more often because of a few reasons. They kind of break it down in the article, but OneNote files are not affected by the protected view or Mark of the Web. What that basically is, if you're not familiar with Mark of the Web, is you can add, when, when you download files and specific files from the internet, there's a stream that gets added to that file. And it's something unique to the NTFS file system where you can kind of have hidden streams. But it basically will add a stream that shows where the file was typically downloaded and a value that shows it was downloaded from the internet. So it's treated as, you know, untrusted. And that's why when you open up a document and especially like, you know, Word or Excel and it, you know, opens in protected view and you can't edit it unless you say you want to edit it, it's likely because it got with that mark of the web and it's trying to give you that extra layer of like, hey, you know, this is might be untrustworthy. We're not going to let everything just run in this because we don't know if we trust it based on where it came from. So a really cool, you know, thing. Obviously, Mark of the Web gets removed if you move a file off the NTFS and move it back on. You know, change file systems that gets cleared. But it's a cool thing. But that's obviously not effective when it comes to OneNote files. And obviously, with OneNote files, you can embed all sorts of those documents that are, you know, typically used in malicious phishing to begin with. So you know, and it's interesting they kind of walk through, you know, who's seen using it. A lot of information stealers, a lot of botnet families like Quackbot and things. They go kind of over the overview of what you would expect to see. And, you know, when looking at it, what's interesting is a lot of times it looks like there's a lot of LNK, HTA, VBS, JavaScript, Visual Basic, you know, Windows script files. So with just looking at this, you know, one of the, the easy things, I think, to detect these types of things is look for OneNote.exe or, you know, the, the executable for that specifically. And it detonating MS hta.exe because mshta is used to actually detonate all these different things that are payloads and that would be an unusual chain of execution you might not catch all the ones mentioned here so you might have to have a couple variations but that should kept capture a majority of those so yeah that's something to to, to pay attention to but yeah it seems like it's it's kind of not going away they do show some great ways people have analyzed these the bottom of the article using one dump pie or one note analyzer or one extract, and they kind of source where those are at. And so examples of how you can kind of pull those down. They even have a YouTube video on the site that kind of walks through it too. But kind of a a, a cool thing, a cool, quick write-up. What's nice, sometimes it's nice to have that huge deep dive. You know, like you talk about the defer reports, like you're not going to miss any bit of data. They'll throw everything at you. This is cool because it really is short and sweet and tells you specifically what you need to do if you want to start taking action now, which seems like it's a, a pretty current technique. So it'd be good to kind of start employing some of these discoveries. So yeah, what, what was your takeaway? Kind of looking at this, it just tells me that no Microsoft Office <laughs> is going to be safe, whatever program they're using. Just once again, the idea of them moving or the threat actors moving away from how do we get past macros? It's just like, well, we don't need macros anymore for OneNote. You know, it does give you that warning. 
but it's a very interesting workaround to the current threat landscape. Once again, the uh, strength of cyber, I'm going to say cybersecurity awareness training when it comes to the, hey, you know, this is, you know, this could be untrusted. Going through the due diligence of seeing where it came from, what is it, or is it really what it says it is? But the fact that a lot of threat actors are adopting this kind of tells me, like you said, um, hurry up, you know, take a look at your environment, see what's happening within it, because, you know, this this threat might not go away if it's not fixed or if a new patch doesn't come out, whatever the fix is, you know, be aware now. So I find it really interesting the way it's being abused and the whole file system that you mentioned, that was brand new to me. Once again, the deeper understanding that the threat actors have of how that works just blows my mind. Learning something new every day in this profession is not a choice. <laughs> you read one of these things and you're like, oh, that's that's new. I found a really interesting article, interesting use of the tech. Of tech vector cool yeah i always like reading things that kind of really do a good job covering kind of the emerging techniques because it's always something that seems like either we just overlooked or just something someone hasn't tried yet so it's always fun to kind of put that together yeah so and it's not um, it's not chock full of just straight iocs right right no that's very true they, they kind of just talked more through you know how this is expected to behave and how it's taking advantage of people. So I thought that was good too. So yeah, that kind of concludes, you know, our five topics, but you know, if you're, if you're enjoying this podcast, something that we do is a live podcast where you won't hear the pre-recorded madness, but it'll be February 16th. And it's usually in the evening just so we can catch people's availability. And we kind of do a themed drink to kind of, you know, lighten everybody's, mood and or make everyone feel a little more relaxed you know while we're doing things live but it's the cyber sentinel which is a whiskey drink and you know there'll be details for this i'm sure you'll see if you look for this live podcast but you can interact with us live on discord we have a bunch of people that have interacted with us in the past and it's been a lot of fun don't be scared to make comments and we try to answer questions interact back as well so please join us for that lee will be there for that and, and as well as mike so for that thanks everyone for joining our out of the woods threat hunting podcast this week that closes our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of February 6, 2023. And happy hunting, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.